So, somewhere in the spirit. Um, I'm going to be talking. Last week, I talked about uh, the first gift list. There are three major gift lists that I want to touch on. The first major gift list are the ministry gifts. That's Ephesians chapter 4. I talked about that last week. This week, I'm going to be speaking from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is what we would call the miraculous gifts. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be talking from Romans 12, the motivational gifts. Now, I'm going to do something, and we how many believe in miracles? Amen? All right. So here's the miracle that's going to happen. Within a reasonable time of the service today, I'm going to preach through two chapters of the Bible. Now, those who've been in the Philippians series on Wednesday know that I can speak for an hour on four verses, right? So this is going to be like, as we say in Spanish, multiplicación de panes y peces, multiplication of fish and loaves. So we're going to just see what we uh, do with this. But really, I'm going to be reading through and just kind of making comments. So let's, uh, let's pray. Let's open in prayer. And then we're going to start working through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. And thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you give us all ears to hear and that you give me a tongue to speak your word for this people at this time, that your church would be blessed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to begin to read from verse 1. It says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's begin to talk about this. 1 Corinthians is written in about the year 55 from uh, Ephesus. Paul is in uh, the city of Ephesus, which is right across the Aegean Sea. Ephesus is now on the western coast, the ruins of Ephesus, on the western coast of Turkey. And he's sending this letter by the hand of his, uh, of his protege, Timothy. He's sending it across the Aegean Sea to the city of Corinth. And uh, he's writing this letter, and this is a troubleshooting letter. I explained this uh, weeks ago, really back in July. I explained how understanding the gifts of the Holy Spirit from these chapters, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, well, I can look at these as a, as a handbook. Uh, it's not a handbook in the sense that the, it's going to have bullet-pointed answers to your questions. Paul is troubleshooting uh, errors, mistakes, questions that the Corinthians have. So you can learn from it, you can be taught from it, uh, but it's not going to be just sort of low-hanging fruit. You have to kind of work at it a little bit because of the nature of the letter. Now, that said, at this point in the letter, Paul is troubleshooting worship. The real division here is chapters 11 through 14. In chapter 11, he deals with two issues. One, dress code for ladies according to the culture of that time. Paul was dealing with a mixed church. It was part Jew, part Gentile. There were all these little rubs that were going on between these groups, and he addressed that. It really doesn't apply to us today, uh, except for the principle that we need to be sensitive and considerate of each other. 
And we need to be reverent toward the Lord. Uh, I don't want to go any further into that just because it's gonna, I've got enough to chew on today besides, besides that. The other is the Lord's Supper. I actually cited some of that as we uh, took the Lord's Supper today. But you'll, you'll note both of those had to do with order and worship. And then he gets into the big thing, the thing that he's got to bite off and chew that's bigger. And that's chapters 12 through 14. And that's the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the service. Now, it's very clear from what he says here and previously in the letter that he's dealing with baby Christians. He's dealing with people who are not really mature. They're spiritually gifted, but they're kind of like wildfire. They're kind of uh, jumping the rails a little bit. And he's trying to uh, school them a little bit. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Let me give you the interpretation to that message in tongues. You guys are blowing it. That's what Paul was saying. He was saying, you are, in fact, ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. That means I'm about to teach you something that you're missing it on. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, he's, he's not being snide about it, but he is saying it. Okay, now, the first thing that he says, the first thing that he brings up is very counterintuitive to what we would think. He brings up the matter of idols. He brings up the matter of idols. Now, let me give you a little bit of context here. If you're in Corinth, if you go northwest from there and you cut across this inlet, this big water inlet that comes in from the Adriatic Sea, the Adriatic is between Greece and Italy, and there's an inlet there called the Gulf of Corinth. And if you cut a kind of catty corner northwest from the city of Corinth up across the Corinthian Gulf and back into the Greek uh, mainland, you're going to come to a place called Mount Parnassus. Mount Parnassus. And at the foot of Mount Parnassus is one of the, one of the really considered the wonders of the ancient world. Anybody hear of the seven wonders of the ancient world? One of those wonders was the Oracle at Delphi. Some people call it the Oracle at Delphi. But it was a huge complex of temples and treasuries and plazas and so forth. And at the heart of this was a crack in the earth underneath the temple to, to Apollo. The whole th complex was to the god Apollo. And underneath, in, in this kind of basement, was a crack in the earth. And, over, and, and we, they know now what was going on there. There were toxic fumes that were coming out of this crack in the earth. And they would take women that were called sibyls. And some would be young, some would be old, and they would... Uh, they would sit them on a three-legged stool above that crack, and the, the fumes would come up and affect these women's thinking, and they would also chew on laurel leaves, and that would together, the, the substance in the leaves and these toxic fumes would put them into a kind of a tizzy, and they would give these utterances that the pagans thought were oracles from Apollo. And now, this was common throughout the ancient world, but the king of them all, the one that everybody considered to be the most accurate, the most incredible, was the oracle at Delphi. Major movements that kings did, historical kings, actions that Athens took against the Persians and so forth, were all based on what the oracle at Delphi said. Now, let's go back to Corinth. The central temple in Corinth was a temple to Apollo. Same God as the dedication to Delphi. There were a bunch of gods. The actual the patron god of, of Corinth was actually Poseidon, the god of the sea. 
but there's this huge temple to, to Apollo, and the, the pillars were not made like most pillars. Even the pillars of the Parthenon in Athens uh, are made of kind of uh, slabs of stone that are carved. It's kind of like a stack of donuts that they make these. Some people, you may have seen that kind of pillar where there's kind of a thing that's jostled and they, they, they make it out of pieces. The, 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 the pillars of the temple of Apollo in Corinth are carved out of single blocks of stone. They were laid hundreds of years before Christ. I was just there in Corinth this past March, six months ago, and guess what? They're still there. They're so huge, they're so monumental that those pillars are still standing. And that temple of Apollo complex was right in the middle of the city. So Paul, having spent time in Corinth and writing back to the Corinthians, this is very strong on his mind, that these people... Most of them had come out of that pagan world and had these false ideas about prophecy and an oracle and how this works. Is everybody tracking with me now? Why he brings up idols? And so what he's trying to do is he's saying, look, i got to hit the reset button for you guys. Your thinking is kind of wonky here. This is not something that's just willy-nilly. This is something that's powerful by the Spirit of God. It's guided. The Spirit blows where he wills. We're going to get into that, say that. But it's real. And what he's doing by saying this is he's laying the foundation for for the flowing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the foundation is true worship of God. True worship of God. Now, True worship of God, at its core, you go across the world and there's going to be different groups that worship in different ways. But the core of all worship is surrender. The number one spiritual biblical metaphor for worship in the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, is the metaphor of a marriage. He's the groom, we're the bride. When the bride and the groom are intimate, there's a flow of blessing. There's power. And that's what what true worship is about. It's about yielding. It's about submission at a level of our entire being to God. This is why Old Testament instructs us. You're like, well, why do I have to worship like that? I got it going on inside. Look, look, we are body, soul, and spirit. We don't Some people used to say, well, I I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. How many have heard that kind of talk? That's Greek philosophy. That is not biblical Hebrew thought. Biblical Hebrew thought is, I am spirit, soul, and body. And what I do with my body, that's that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 has to say, forget this immortality stuff. Resurrection. The body matters. What you do in the body matters. What you do with the body matters. So here's the thing. This is why in the Old Testament it says, raise your hands, clap, dance, sing loud. All these different things stir our inner being. Why? Because we're a unity. There's a surrender at the level of all we are. That's why the next thing he says, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by his Spirit. Jesus being Lord is the point of worship. It's you engaging with your full being and enjoying his Lordship, surrendering to his Lordship. 
That's worship. That's the, that's the backdrop. So when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, I've talked about the gifts of the Spirit for years. When I was in Ecuador teaching in the Bible college there, it was my most attended class. People are hungry to know this stuff. How many want to know about the gifts of the Spirit and how they operate, right? People want that stuff. People are interested in that stuff. But I want to tell you, if we're going to compare this to like uh, a computer program or something like that, like a, a, how, how a computer works, the gifts are the programs or the apps, right? You know, there's an app for that. You know, here's my phone. There's an app. You know, I'm oh, I need to pull out my healing app. You know, I need to pull out my uh, interpretation of tongues app or whatever. But the operating system is worship, right? That's the backdrop to the whole thing. You've got to have that worship flowing. And this, these chapters are confusing to a lot of people because they're like, oh, these are the chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing how little Paul says about specifically what the gifts are, although we can glean it from the scriptures, and how much time he spends on other stuff. Why? Why is he doing that? And this is before I get into the rest of it. Because he's more interested in you flowing than you knowing. You're going to know as you flow. But what good is it to know if, you're not, if you don't flow? He wants you to flow. People ask me this stuff. People, my students would ask me at NU all the time. They're like, have you seen miracles? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen miracles. I've seen miracles. Well, how come there are miracles over there and there are not miracles here as much? And I, I don't understand. And there's kind of this implicit, either an accusation of God by implication, like, does God like them better than he likes us? Or maybe a self-accusation, like, we're, what's, what's going on here? What, what do they know that we don't know? And, and so forth. I want to spend the bulk of my time here this morning explaining those elements that may be in place in other parts of the world and maybe used to be in place with us that we've lost track of. I want to tell you something. The point of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is ease. There's a flow. It's not something you... There's a little miracle. Look at it. You're you're trying or whatever. I'll tell you a story. Quickly. Not too many stories today because we've got a lot to cover. There was a woman... This happened, this happened 14, I think it was 14 years ago. There was a woman at the church in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, who was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was so virulent, it was so, so aggressive, it was growing so aggressively, it had affected her where she was very sensitive to light. She couldn't hardly turn her head or move her head at all uh, without severe pain. But she had come to the Lord, and she didn't want to die without being baptized. The doctor said, literally, I mean, brain cancer. My brother-in-law died of brain cancer, and it's quick. It kills very, very rapidly. And so she literally just had weeks to live, and we were baptized. We are in a campaign of baptism. We baptized 600 people in three months in this church. And in this church, we baptized, like I freak some people out here in May, you go straight down. (laughs) Instead of those backward things, you go straight down. And so this sister went in to the waters 
And there was a staff pastor there, and I mean, we were just baptizing people like crazy in these services. And she, she just she begged him, and he was primed. Somebody was escorting her. Please be careful. She's in great pain, so you've got to be careful as she goes down. She, she's not flexible like other people. I mean, this isn't an older lady. She, she was young. I would say she was probably late 30s or 40-ish. She went down under those waters, and when she came up, the cancer did not come with her. God instantaneously healed her as as that was going on. You say, well, why was it so easy for her? Well, I want to tell you, when those people worship, I I stand in that sanctuary, and it's like a wind at my back. It's crazy. People over in Korea, you go to Dr. Cho's church over in Korea, Seoul, Korea, here you got to beg people to get praying. There you got to beg them to stop. They literally have a bell that they ring. Okay, quit. Stop praying. We've got to get on with the service. So there's, a, there's this hunger thing, and it's all in the context of the community. So worship is the backdrop. But there are two other major things that we want to talk about here as we get into it. Now, from verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. If you, you blink, you'll miss it, but there's a reference to the Trinity right there. Spirit, Lord, God. Get it? Right? Varieties of gifts, same Spirit. Varieties of service, same Lord. Varieties of activities, same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what he's saying here, what Paul is saying is, God's will, God's desire, if the church is flowing with him, is worshiping properly, and is open to these things, and is receiving these things, it's his will that collectively all these nine gifts are going to be flowing in the body. It doesn't mean that everybody has all nine gifts. When I was a young man, I mean, I had some zealous friends who were like, we're all supposed to have all of them. Meaning, each individual is supposed to flow in all nine. Well, that's that's not biblical. That's a misunderstanding of the grammar of this passage. All of us collectively are supposed to have all of these gifts. And God gives according to his will. Some people are going to flow in one or more gifts, others in others. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist says, God gives him the spirit without limit. So he flowed in them all, except for tongues and interpretation. Those are, those are given to the church. And some of these gifts are, uh, are evident in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, all of them, except for, again, tongues and interpretation of tongues, those are a new covenant gift for specific reasons I think I've already explained over the summer. Now, for teaching reasons, people have divided these nine gifts into three groups of three each. Three groups of three each. So track me here, because this is the closest you're going to get to me giving you an encyclopedic breakdown of this passage. Three groups of three. These gifts are commonly known as the power gifts, the revelation gifts, and the inspiration gifts. 
Can you say that with me? Power, inspiration, revelation. All right, now, if you look at them, it makes sense that, that people have broken them down that way. He says, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Later in the, in the passage, it says, in verse 10, it says, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. So you have the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the discerning of spirits. These different gifts are actually discernible in the Old Testament and again in the New Testament. I'll give you an example of the word of wisdom quickly. Joseph, in prison, pulled out of prison. Pharaoh tells him the dream that he had about the cows and the wheat and so forth. And Joseph has the wisdom to interpret that. It's a foretelling, but it's a foretelling with a plan. The foretelling comes with an understanding of why God's doing it. God is not, by his spirit, just sort of capriciously going to reveal the future to you just for fun. Just to make you have, as a matter of fact, there's plenty in his word that says, look, I don't want you to worry about tomorrow. But the reason why he might strategically give you information about tomorrow is so that you can plan in advance. There was wisdom in that foreknowledge. The dream, Pharaoh didn't get it. It was really the word of wisdom came to Joseph. Because Joseph said, look, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be seven plenty years, seven years of famine. So what you ought to do is get a, real, get a wise guy. That's a joke. Uh, Get a wise man who's going to be able to put this stuff together. You're going to store up grain. Then you're going to be able to pull out from the excess of the seven years. It's going to get you through the famine and so forth. And, of course, he gets the job. That's a word of wisdom. My pastor in Kentucky, when he was a young man in seminary, God showed him in advance. God showed him that there was going to be a, uh, in a dream, God showed him that during, a, I think it was a business meeting of the church, that somebody was going to cause trouble. Somebody was going to stand up and try to split the church and cause a scandal and everything else. And so he sat down with his board and he said, God, God showed me a dream. He showed me that so-and-so is going to stand up, or somebody's going to stand up and cause this problem. So he said, well, what would we do if that happened? And so they planned it out. They planned it out. And guess what? During their business meeting, somebody's tried to do that exact thing. And boy, they were Johnny on the spot. It just diffused the whole thing. That's a word of wisdom. It's wisdom given in advance, and it makes you look, wow, but it's a drop of God's wisdom. Patty knew a year in advance that we we're going to go, to back, go back to the, go to the mission field in uh, 1992. She knew. She had, she had been... Uh, on mission trips, I had been on mission trips, and she knew, she had been to Ecuador, and she knew she was going to go back. She knew a year in advance, and she kept telling me. And I was like, honey, there's all this red tape. That's impossible. You, these women, they always get these ideas, right? So, you, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you think, you, honey, there's, we got to do this, we got to do this. It's a process taking, you know, I don't know, I just feel like we're going to go. And bam, it was seven weeks stem to stern from when we got the word to when we were in language school on the ground in Costa Rica. And it was one year. God showed her ahead of time. That was a word of wisdom. Now, the next thing, a word of knowledge, is a knowing, but it's of the present. It's of the present. This thing is going on right now. This thing is happening right now. If you're here in, uh, in January, 
uh, Ron Brown was here. He flows very powerful in a word of knowledge. He's just very, very powerful. Guy, guy, it seems like the guy can see through a brick wall. I was, I was standing with him. He was just re, it was like he was, going, he was looking right through people. He knew what was going on in their life. He knew, he knew the flukes. He, knew, he, he looked at them. I was just like, I haven't even talked to him. He's like, you guys keep the church just together. You guys, are, you guys are just keeping it together. That's what Bill and Nancy do. They keep the thing, they keep it running. The nuts, the nuts and the bolts aspect of the, of, the, of the facility. He just knew that about them. That's, that's a knowing. That present knowing is, is something that's very powerful. Um, and there can, there can be kind of an ambiguity. Like, is this wisdom or knowledge? Who cares? God's showing you something. I remember when we came back from Costa Rica. This happened. I'm like, God, why did you show me this? We came back from Costa Rica. I needed, uh, we, were, we were one month before we went, went to Ecuador. Um, I had two watches. Patty didn't have a watch. And I, I uh, it's just the way it was right then. Somebody had given me a watch, and Patty's like, I don't have a watch. And so I went into the store where we got this watch. I wanted a new battery in it before we went on the mission field. And the woman was taking a long time with this watch, putting a battery in. Like. And so I'm standing there, and the Holy Spirit whispered to me. I'm just telling you what happened. The Holy Spirit whisper, whispered to me and said, she's going to destroy your watch. And... You're going to get a store credit, and with that store credit, you're going to get Patty a watch. The prompting was so strong, I walked, I was waiting at the counter, I was looking, and I saw my watch right there. I saw how much it was worth, because we had just gotten it a year before. So I walked over to the ladies' watches, and I picked out a watch for Patty, because the woman was taking so long. So I picked out the watch for Patty, same price, and the woman came back. She said, I just had trouble getting the battery in there, and, um, but I got it. And I looked, and she had pushed the battery so hard, she had pushed the face out from the inside, and the, the hands were like this. And I said, oh, um, you've destroyed the watch. You know, she's, oh, no, what am I going to do? And I think we can repair it. You know, when the guy gets back, it's going to be next Thursday. He's on vacation. I said, I'll be in Ecuador by then. And I wasn't mad at her, but I was kind of smiling because the Lord had showed me. She said, oh, no, you can't leave the country. I said, well, tell you what, could I get a store credit for that and maybe get another watch? She said, oh, that would, I thought it had great sentimental value to you, but I mean, if, yeah. I said, why don't we go over here? And I got Patty her watch and took it home. Now, why can't the Lord show me that about, like, the stock market or something? <laughs> but, but it was more important for him that he had probably be too dangerous for the Lord to show me what, what's going on in the stock market. But that's, that's that kind of knowledge. Now, discerning of spirits is in the same realm. It's a revelation gift. This has to do with understanding what's going on in the spiritual realm. Very strong manifestation of this would be like a vision. People have seen angels. They've seen demonic forces, different things. Um, a lot of times there's just a knowing. There's just a knowing. I remember one time I was in seminary. I was praying like a crazy. I was living alone. I was living like a monk. I was probably praying three, four hours a day. It was just crazy. And I walked in to where I worked, which was at a remote site, you know, or Christian TV station. I walked in, and uh, the guy I was relieving, he was a preacher kid, but he had gotten into some dicey stuff and bad, sinful habits uh, in the army. He had gotten out of the army. He was trying to get right with the Lord, but it just seemed like he kept backsliding. I walked in, I looked at him, and I said to myself, suicide. There's a spirit of suicide on him. 
I walked up to him. I grabbed his hand. I mean, he, he couldn't lift his head. He was so full of shame and despair. I prayed. I broke. I, I didn't ask him. I just began to pray. And I broke the spirit of suicide off him. I rebuked it in Jesus' name. And he looked at me. Finally, the spirit lifted, and he looked at me. He said, how did you know? He said, I was going to kill myself. I said, where did you meet her? <laughs> That's what I said. He said, I went to a club. I shouldn't have gone to a club. And he fell into deep sin, and he was just, he just, he just had had it. He was so in despair about his bondage to this, to this sexual sin that he said, I've had it. I'm going to take my own life. And God showed me. I could tell you story after story. That's a, that's a discerning of spirits. That's something where, where the Lord is moving by his spirit. Now, gifts of power. Gifts of power would be faith, uh, healings, working of miracles. Now, there's going to be a lot of overlap here, too. But faith is basically the ability in God, a drop of God's faith, to do what is just impossible by any measure. Like raising the dead. That's the gift of faith. When Peter turns to a dead woman named Tabitha and says, Tabitha, get up. And she gets up. That's the gift of faith. It's just impossible. It can't happen any other way. Now, gift, gifts of healing, it's, and that's plural, by the way, there, there are different sundry gifts where people flow in healing. And this, this was really evident earlier in the 20th century where you had these great healing evangelists. You had Oral Roberts, you had these other great T.L. Osborne, you had these great men of faith. And they had a tendency to be particularly strong in one area of healing, pain or a cancer or rheumatoid arthritis or something, but they kind of flowed in one particular area, one or two areas. So there's gifts of healing that flow. And then the working of miracles generally is categorized of everything that's outside of that that's, that's like a miraculous thing, like a multiplication of food or, um, you know, Peter's shadow healing people. It's like things that's, that sort of defy the natural order, uh, and God miraculously does something. So there's, there, there's something like that. And then, and then the revelation gifts, or excuse me, uh, the inspiration gifts would be tongues and interpretation and prophecy. And I've already talked quite a bit about those earlier in the summer. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But the point is, tongues, a message in tongues in the congregation with an interpretation is the same as a prophetic word. Now, a lot of people get their wires crossed. They call something a prophecy when really it's a word of, knowledge, a word of wisdom, right? Or a word of knowledge. They call it, they're, wow, you know, you're foretelling a future, that's prophecy. That's really the word of wisdom. Paul defines prophecy. Prophecy is a message for the present that's intended for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. If a word comes, this is when we have these gifts flow in our, in our, in our services here, the word comes out, people have come to me and said, wow, that was just for me. It edified me, it comforted me, or it exhorted me. That, that is, and if, if, if a word does that, and it conforms to Scripture, it's on the money. It's on the money. If a word comes and condemns you and or doesn't square with Scripture, it's, it's wrong. You know, I heard, <laughs> I've heard some crazy um, stories of prophecies. I've heard some prophecies, but I've heard some crazy stories of prophecies. 
you know, where, you know, a woman's given an interpretation of tongues of prophecy. Oh, my little children, don't be afraid. I get afraid sometimes too myself. Okay, well, <laughs> um, that's not the, the spirit of the Lord, right? That's her own thinking because God isn't afraid of nothing, <laughs> right? One woman was speaking a word of condemnation to a church. If you don't turn and repent, you might as well just write Michelob over the door of this church. It's supposed to be Ichabod, right? She got it wrong. <laughs> so not everything comes out just because somebody says, thus saith the Lord, is necessarily the Lord saying thus. It's, it's, you, you, have to, you have to square them with, with Scripture. But, it, but it, if it, it's, these are inspirational. And they are powerful gifts. There have been prophetic words. You think, man, give me the hard stuff. I want to see a miracle. You know, I want to see, you know, I want to I see some of the, you know, give me the good stuff. You know, you're holding back on us, Lord. Well, it's my sense that we got to walk before we can run. We got to flow in inspiration gifts first before we can flow in this other stuff. That's a rule of thumb. It's not a hard and fast law. But on the other hand, I want to tell you, sometimes an encouraging word that you know is from God, it can be the greatest miracle that you need at that time. So don't, don't, don't denigrate. The, the gift that you need is the gift for the moment. Right? If you're sick, you need healing. If you're discouraged, a sickness of soul, you need a word from the Lord. So these are, these, are, these are the gifts, right? This is kind of the catalog of the gifts. Now, let me go on. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are, there, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, that's a big chunk of scripture to say something simple and profound. 
And that is, if the backdrop, the, the atmosphere in which the gifts of the Spirit flows is worship, then the legs we stand on in that context, the first one is unity. Unity. We must have unity in the body of Christ. God said of the people of Babel, and they were doing the wrong thing. They were doing it wrong. Their motive was wrong. It was all wrong. But he said, even said about them, hey, nothing will stop them because they're unified. What if we're unified in God's spirit? Now I'm going to tell you right now something that I've said many times since coming here as pastor. It is not natural that we would be unified. Everything in our fallen human nature seeks our own. That's something that needs to be faced. We need to face two realities. We cannot function as the church of Jesus Christ without unity, and you, may, you can kiss the gifts of the Spirit goodbye. Forget it. Fracture and division grieves the Holy Spirit. He cannot do what he wants to do. He flees that strife. We must have unity. That's, that's one very important point. And the other most important point is we are prone in and of ourselves to precisely the opposite. So we've got to yield. This goes back to worship. We've got to surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God and ask him to bring in, I talked about it a couple weeks ago, wrecking ball Jesus. Right? Jesus, wreck my wreckage. Destroy my destruction. Do what you got to do in me so that I can be unified. Because the point here is unity in diversity. This, is, this passage, so many sermons have been preached on this passage to talk about the body of Christ, to talk about unity, to talk, and good, good messages. I'm not belittling those messages. But look at the context. The context is about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul's got a point here. He's not just making a, uh, he's not just coming up with some aimless inspirational passage about Christo or about ecclesiology where he's like, okay, this is, this is the way the church has got to function. He's saying specifically, this is how the church functions if you want to flow in gifts, and not just any gifts, the miraculous. You want to see the miraculous? You got to get in a context where people are unified. You think and you think in sub-Saharan Africa, where miracles happen, where these people believe, Southeast Asia, South America, where God's doing these explosive things, you think the people are any more prone to unity there than we are here? If you do, you've got a very two-dimensional understanding of world cultures. Because they are as fractious left to themselves as we are. It takes the Spirit of God to unify them, and sometimes it takes persecution, it takes external pressure, it takes different things. I want to say, Jesus, bring it. Bring it. Bring whatever it takes for us to see your power before we see your face. I would rather be poor, broken, and persecuted and see God raise the dead than be empty and rich and lazy and Laodicean. I don't want it. No, thank you. We want to see the power of God. And that means, God, do what you have to do to unify us. It's our natural tendency to do exactly what Paul demonstrates and, and lays out in, quite, frankly, a pretty ridiculous 
illustration. He's being ridiculous and comical on purpose. The arm very specifically wants to say, I'm the arm and everybody needs to be like me. Everybody needs to be the arm. I do it this way. Everybody should do it this way. See how I do it. Come on. Everybody get with the program. And Paul is saying, look, the body by nature, it's unity in the midst of diversity. We appreciate the diversity as we're together and unified. Everybody in this room has had their life dominated, even younger ones. Because the younger ones are the children of, of, of people who, to whom what I'm about to say applies. We're children of the, what, what's, what's, what historians call the Pax Americana. The Pax Americana. The Pax Americana is American hegemony since World War II. American superpower dominance since World War II. The bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and nobody wants to go near, nobody wants to see that in their country. So everybody's, so we've, we've been through all these years since then, 75 years since the end of World War II, and we've been living, but you know what? The Pax Americana is very much like the Pax Romana that was the setting for the spread of the gospel. It's not, it's not a real peace. It's a tortured peace. It's a peace by oppression. It's a peace that if you get out of line, we're going to bring the nuke down on you. I mean, the Romans didn't have nukes, but they had their own super weapons, right? They had their own scorched earth policies. And we're children, really, of the Cold War. And we've called it peace. Cold War is not peace. God, the unity that God is talking about here is not the absence of open strife. That is not enough. What God wants is the unity of the Holy Spirit is an active, living presence. and an active, living, positive presence. It's not just the absence of open war. Are you, does everybody follow the difference there? The presence of unity that's required in our midst is the very presence that enables us by a mystery to say, we serve one God in three persons. One God, three persons. That's our Godhead. We're monotheists, but we recognize that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect unity one with the other. That's an active presence. It would be a blasphemy for us to say, well, Father, Son, and Spirit get along, but in kind of a cold war. Cold wars in churches kill the move of the Holy Spirit. You cannot function that way. That's not what God, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Absence of war, of, of, of hot war, ab absence of the sword being drawn. It's enough just that the, the threat that the sword will be drawn is enough to grieve the spirit and send it from the room. We, we've got to have something deeper than that. And then Paul says this at the end of 12. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What's that more excellent way? Here he's going to say, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Does everybody get this? I don't think this really needs a whole lot of embellishment. Right? It doesn't matter how, how much we say, oh, look at me, I've done this much, and Lord, I've got this laundry list of you know, you know, credits or, or pedigrees that I can offer you, and, and, and here's my resume and so forth. If you don't have love, those, I'm not saying those things are, don't have value. Paul's not saying these things don't have value. He's saying that without love, they're nullified. That's what he's saying. Does everybody understand the difference there? He's not saying these things aren't worthwhile. There's plenty of commands that, that we should have faith. That we, that, but the point is, without love, it's, it means nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Are familiar with the whole love wins out there? People, people using the word love, using the idea of love to justify wickedness. Anybody hear what I said? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We, we're so upside down in our culture about what love even is. You know, we've lost complete track of it. Paul's bringing us back. On track. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This passage right here, stopping right there at verse 7. I've had weddings I've performed where the bride and groom, oh, we want the love passage. I've had, and they, oh, okay, it's good. It's their wedding, you know, so I, I quote the love passage as, as part of the ceremony as we're hammering that out. Um, I've had students say, oh, I want to do, you know, they're doing an exegesis paper, meaning they're doing an uh, exposition, uh, a Bible, uh, in-depth Bible study paper, and they want to do it on this passage. It's fine. But I, I've always warned my students, this is a more complicated passage than it appears because we can be blinded by the sentiment of it. There's a reason, and a lot of people are confused. There's a reason why Paul's talking about, apparently, nuts and bolts of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in chapter 12, really gets into the nuts and bolts in chapter 14. In the middle of it, what is this tangent he's running on talking about love? I mean, that doesn't, it's completely, it doesn't make sense. It breaks his flow. Wrong. You haven't understood the passage. It's perfectly in flow. Because, remember, we stand on two legs. Worship is the atmosphere Leg one is unity, leg two is love. We've got to, and Paul says, hey, just like you're standing in line someplace, if you're going to have that kind of slipshod pose where you're leaning on one leg or the other, is everybody, who's your, what's your favorite leg, right? Everybody's got their favorite leg that they prefer to lean on, right? Let your favorite leg be love. Love's the one that you need to lean on more. Because he says, this is the more excellent way. Now, this passage, it doesn't, I mean, it's one of those things that, why, why should I expound upon it? It's something that needs to be memorized. It's something that needs to be chewed on. It's something that needs to permeate to the bottom of our soul where we recognize we're not matching it. <laughs> we're not, you know, but we need to get it going. We need to get it going inside of ourselves. We need to get it going inside of our families. We need to get it going inside of our church so we can reach. I remember when I was in college, man, I was, you know, I was at Notre Dame and everybody, the back, even back in the 80s, it was loaded with social justice warriors, you know, 
people marching, world peace and all, you know, we need to love your, you know, and it just seemed like everybody talking about peace and love were so mad. You know, they were so mad about everything. And I'm like, dude, you don't get along with your roommate. And you're wanting, you know, I mean, you're, you're a loose cannon in the dorm and you want to bring peace to Zimbabwe? I mean, come on. I mean, we got to have this thing. We got to work through it. Now, let me say, finish it out. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what is Paul saying in that last section? The, the, the real understanding of what he's getting at beyond the specifics is this. You've got to keep carts behind horses. You've got to recognize what leads the way and what follows. What follows are the gifts. What leads the way are these things I've mentioned. Worship, unity, love. Why? Because the gifts by their very nature are the breath of heaven. That's, that's, that's what Paul elsewhere describes and other New Testament writers describe. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. The word there in Greek is arabon. It, it literally means engagement ring. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring of heaven. The Holy Spirit is the foretaste of things to come. It's the breath of heaven. And the gifts, everybody knows. I'm telling you, I've had even just a tongue and interpretation, what most people consider the lesser gifts. Man, they get done and God's in the house. I mean, you're like, whoa, the hairs are standing up on the back of your neck. And you're like, wow, God is absolutely present. And you see God, I want to tell you, my, my freshman year roommate, Anybody ever hear Reinhard Bonnke? Reinhard Bonnke? I heard Reinhard Bonnke in the spring of 1983 at Lester Summerall's church. He was just a young evangelist. Went to the morning service. The guy is off the chain, man. I mean, just the anointing of God is just flowing in the place. And then that night, he comes in. I brought my roommate. And from, from me to Bill, Reinhard Bonnke heals a woman of blindness. Right in front of our eyes. Bam! I mean, my roommate was like, I mean, there's, there's a manifestation of glory in the presence, but here's the thing to keep it in perspective. The gifts, even the highest gifts, are ultimately earthly. In other words, they're for this time. They're heavenly, but injected into, the, into this earth. The gifts themselves will pass away. But these other things will never pass away. Unity, are we going to be unified in heaven? Are we going to love each other in heaven? Are we going to worship in heaven? This is the thing. Like the service, and this is the way evangelical churches have gone, kind of the 
the main thing is the message, and that's good, praise God. <laughs> I would be without a job if it weren't that way. But I want to tell you, in this service, from the time we started at 1030 to now, the gift that I'm exercising right now is temporal. It will pass away. Because in heaven, none of y'all are going to need to get taught. The ministry that Pastor Joseph brought, now that's eternal. We're still going to be singing in heaven. We're still going to be worshiping in heaven. What's worship going to be like in heaven? Anybody, anybody remember that old uh, song, I Can Only Imagine? I can only imagine what it's going to be like in heaven to worship him. But that's true and not true. Let me read a passage. Because we get a glimpse in the book of Revelation. Revelation 14, 2, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Not going to get into all the eschatology, but I'm going to tell you right now, that's us. I'm going to rock your world. That's us. We're going to be there, and we're going to be singing. You know what? Here's the thing. You want miracles? You want a manifestation of the miraculous? Worship like you're in heaven. Love like you're in heaven. Be unified like you're in heaven, and heaven will come down. Hallelujah. Pastor Joseph, would you come? I want us to bow our heads in prayer right now. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. I kept you. But I did finish, and so it's a minor miracle, not a major miracle. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you, Lord, that you see us. We thank you, Father, that... People of old who were sinners and flawed and weak received miracles and that gives us hope because we're sinners who are flawed and weak. God, we see people today flow and it seems so easy for them and we want that. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you give everybody an ear to hear. As I close this message, I ask you to give them an ear to hear. Let your truth resonate in their heart. God, bring them into the valley of decision. I believe we're already there. God, on what type of Christian we're going to be. Help us stand on these two legs. Surrounded by strains of glorious worship worshiping you. Would you all stand? Stand right now.